Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we are so honored that you've decided to join us today. Whether you know it or not, God is ready, willing, and able to breathe new life into your spiritual journey. And I promise you won't want to miss out on that. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. Our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people just like you to become more like Jesus. There is nothing more important in life than your relationship with Him, and we are committed to helping you grow in your love and devotion to Him. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives learning to live like Him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of His followers, well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. More than 35 years ago, Motorola employee Martin Cooper placed the first call on a mobile phone to his rival at Bell Labs. It was a one of these babies, affectionately known as the Brick, now a boat anchor, technologically speaking. Uh, Wired.com calls it the Model T of mobile phones. Uh, my dad had one of these. He was an early adopter of technology. At one point, he even had a wired mobile phone in his car. It looked like a typical handset at, at, at home in the late 70s, but it only had one button. Uh, you picked up the receiver and you'd push the button to be connected to an operator. It had a four-block radius and cost an arm and a leg per minute of conversation. Uh, the mobile race was on after Motorola released the brick for public use in 1983. I think I got my first cell phone around a Nokia model like this on the screens in 1933-ish. Does anyone else remember their first cell phone model? <laughs> now, I skipped the whole BlackBerry phase. After all, no one's ever going to want to type on a phone. Eventually, I upgraded to the ultra-cool and modern Motorola Razor flip phone. I'm not sure how many different cell phones I had before Apple released the first iPhone on June 29, 2007. I don't think I got on the iPhone bandwagon with that first one. But eventually, they snagged me, and I've been an iPhone user right up to number 15. Now, <laughs> down and back there. Think about the difference between this brick and this iPhone 15. The brick could make a call. 
if you were in the right place at the right time and all the stars aligned, the service area was pretty limited. But it, that's what it was. It could make a call. But I can and have used my iPhone all over the world to avoid taking phone calls. <laughs> I can manage most of my life right here from the palm of my hand. I can communicate with anyone around the world. I can find out who that guy was in that scene in the movie I just watched. I can't remember the title of. I, I can pay my bills. I can pull up my ring camera to see who's knocking at my front door. I can read my Bible, read a book, listen to music, a podcast, watch movies, make movies, check my email, document every meal I eat and post it on social media. <laughs> I, can, I can entertain myself for hours. In my hand, I have more computing power than it took to send men to the moon in 1969. Now, unless you are an old curmudgeon like Glenn Barker, which would you prefer? Uh, I think uh, what, what Glenn Barker would like most about this brick is that it won't work today. Modern technology has outpaced its technology so far that it is no longer compatible with anything. We couldn't go back even if we wanted to. Time has made this brick obsolete. Now, it's the same kind of problem that the author of Hebrews was addressing as he wrote to the second generation of Hebrew Christians. Still immersed in the Jewish culture, these Christ followers were tempted to return to the comfort and security found in the practices and rituals of Judaism, especially in the face of persecution. And this longing for comfort and security, the, the longing to fit in to their culture, was getting away, getting in the way of their spiritual development. They weren't growing spiritually like the way they were supposed to be growing. So the author has been encouraging them to stay the course as he's demonstrated why Jesus is a better choice. The best choice. And I don't know about you, but it feels like the author started with the big picture. Uh, maybe the 30,000-foot view of why Jesus is greater before narrowing the focus little by little. Uh, maybe, maybe we can picture it like this. As the Son of God, Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, if you are joining us for the first time today, let me just acknowledge that we know that Jesus is God. But in Hebrews, the author focuses on Jesus in his role as the Son of God. So we're, we're going along with that during our study. At the 30,000-foot level, Jesus, as the Son of God, is greater than the angels, which makes total sense in the heavenly realms if you are Jewish. God the Father is at top, then Jesus, then the angels, then humankind. It used to be Jesus, mankind, then angels. But thanks to Adam and Eve, we've been demoted. Uh, we know that someday we will once again be greater than the angels because one of our roles in eternity will be to judge the angels. But for now, we've been demoted. But even in his humanity, Jesus wasn't demoted. He is greater than the angels because while he was human, he accomplished something the angels could never do. 
He righted what Adam and Eve had wronged. So he is still greater. Now Jesus is also greater than Moses, the greatest of all Jewish prophets. And because Moses was greater than all the other Jewish prophets, Jesus is greater than them as well. And then Jesus is also the greatest high priest, greater than any of the other high priests descended from Aaron, the first high priest, because Jesus is a high priest of a different order, an older order, the order of Melchizedek. And since even the Jews through Abraham acknowledged that Melchizedek was a greater high priest, that meant Jesus inherited his greatness in their eyes. If they had believed in him. Can, can you see how the author is spiraling down little by little? He's building a case for something that he doesn't want us to miss. He's taking us deep into some pretty important theology. And to be honest, it's a theology that the greater church has struggled to understand and live out for 2,000 years. I mean, we say all the right things, but we aren't very good at living them out. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. As we learned last week, our greater high priest, Jesus, has not only replaced the high priestly order of Aaron, but he has also replaced the covenant that they represented with a covenant that he represents. We most commonly call them the old covenant and the new covenant. And we should understand some of the differences. Uh, we've already learned that the old covenant was temporary. It was a placeholder pointing to Jesus until Jesus came onto the scene of history. The new covenant is permanent. It is eternal. We've already learned that the old covenant covered sin and the new covenant cleanses from sin. The old covenant required continual sacrifice. The new covenant only one perfect sacrifice. On a more practical level, the Old Covenant tried to minimize sin or maybe manage mankind's sinful nature from the outside in with 615 moral, civil, and religious laws. That's a lot of thou shalt nots. Practically, that's us saying no to sin, which still leaves sin in the power seat. We are still in bondage to our sinful nature because no one can say no to sin for very long. Sin eventually wins. Anything you focus on gets bigger, and the bigger it gets, the more it consumes. That's why little sins lead to medium sins, and medium sins lead to big sins, and big sins lead to addictions. Sin has an appetite that is never satisfied. It always needs more. And at the end of the day, you could say no to sin and still technically obey the law with a crappy heart. Uh, if the law says thou shalt not commit adultery, I can not commit adultery and still not be faithful to my wife on the inside. So while the old covenant attempts to minimize our sinful nature from the outside in, the new covenant seeks to maximize freedom from the inside out with one law. Instead of saying no to sin, we're saying yes to Jesus, who told us to love each other as I, Jesus, have loved you. That's it. 
That's our one law. We call it the law of love. In, every, in any and every situation, what does love require of me? What does love require of me starts with the heart and then moves to actions. And what does love require of me always leads, to, leads us to a place that is greater than any of the 615 Old Covenant laws. Faithfulness to deity in my heart will always lead to faithfulness to deity in my actions. Which, think about it, what would she prefer? That I stay faithful on the outside, but not on the inside, or faithful through and through. See, the law of love is better. It always leads to better results, which includes freedom from the bondage of sin. But don't confuse the Bible's idea of freedom with our American idea of freedom. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians to use our freedom to serve one another in love. Biblical freedom is the freedom to do good, to serve others. It is other-focused living. Other-focused living always leads to biblical freedom. Self-focused living always leads to bondage to sin. If American freedom is I get to do what I want to do, then biblical freedom is I get to do what is good for you. And this is where things have been challenging for the church for 2,000 years. We don't understand or manage our freedom very well. So we revert to rules to manage our sinful nature, which is no different than the old covenant way of doing things. We call that legalism, and many of us grew up with rules like no alcohol, period. No dancing, no movies, no rock and roll, no jeans women, no hats in church men. I mean, if dancing tempts me to lust, then nobody should get to dance. If alcohol tempts me to get drunk, then nobody should get to drink. It's still a lot of thou shalt nots. Instead of no, we're supposed to live by the power of yes. Yes to Jesus means doing what love requires in every situation. And yes is powered by the Holy Spirit. What does love require of me is always powered by the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, however, even though we are just as expert at mismanaging the new covenant as the Jews were expert at mismanaging the old covenant, the new covenant administered by our better high priest is the superior covenant. And chapter 8 tells us why. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. This is probably where modern chapters and verse numbers don't help us very well. In the original Hebrews document, there were no chapter breaks and verse numbers, which means that when the author says, here is the main point, we have a high priest, he is continuing the train of thought from the end of chapter 7. So here is the main point. We have the kind of high priest who is able to administer this new covenant that even in his moral perfection is able to identify with our weaknesses and temptations making him the superior high priest that we need to actually live by this new covenant. And our high priest is seated. 
He isn't standing in the throne room of heaven. He is seated, meaning that his work is complete. There were no seats in the earthly tabernacle or temple because the work of the priest was never done. They were continually sacrificing because none of the sacrifices was ever enough to finish the job, to close the gap caused by sin. They just covered it. And it isn't just that he is seated, but where he is seated that matters. The author has already touched upon this truth and will again. Uh, he is seated at the throne, at the right, on a throne at the right hand of God the Father. The high priests of Israel not only never sat down in the temple, they also never sat on a throne. And verse 2. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Our high priest is better. His new covenant is better. And the fact that he ministers in a heavenly sanctuary, a sanctuary built by God himself instead of by human hands, is part of the proof. The author expands on this idea as we continue with verse 3. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Now, we've, we've already established that Jesus is a high priest. But that isn't just an empty title for Jesus or anyone else. All high priests had actual duties, as did our high priest. But because our high priest wasn't qualified for his priesthood by the regulations of the Old Covenant, he wouldn't have been able to perform his priestly duties in an earthly temple. That is, uh, that is a mere replica of the heavenly one. So logically, as a superior high priest, he must be ministering in a superior sanctuary. Since Jesus is ministering in the original sanctuary, not the copy, he is ministering in a better place. So to sum up the author's arguments so far, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, first, because it is ministered by a superior high priest, and second, because it is ministered in a superior place. The rest of this chapter turns to support the third argument for a better covenant. It is better because it is founded on better promises. Uh, verse 6. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Now before we go any further, it might help us to understand the nature of covenants. A covenant is an agreement between two parties in which each party makes promises to the other and exchanges symbols for those promises. We consider marriage to be a covenant. Just to give an example, a man and a woman exchange vows and rings are the symbols representing those vows. Biblically, right from the beginning, we see that God interacts with his people through covenants. Scholars classify them into two types. Conditional and unconditional covenants. Conditional covenants are covenants that require something from both parties. 
Unconditional covenants only require something from one party. So for example, after the flood, God promised Noah that he would never again destroy the world by water. That promise was an unconditional covenant because it didn't require anything from Noah for God to keep his promise. In the desert, God made a conditional covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. If the people of Israel followed the laws of God, he would bless and protect them. If they didn't, they would receive the curses associated with the covenant, which they willingly agreed to. They, they wanted those blessings, so they agreed to the conditions of the covenant. Sadly, we can look back through history to see that they, more often than not, didn't follow the laws of God. So they experienced the curses far more than the blessings. In spite of the Israelites' faithlessness, God was determined to stay faithful. So he pursued them and promised a new covenant. Verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Now the fault of the first covenant wasn't in the covenant itself. It was in the people. They defaulted on the terms and conditions of the covenant. If they had remained faithful, there would have been no need for a second covenant. But they didn't remain faithful. So God gave us a covenant that didn't depend on our faithfulness, but his. Now, I say us and them, but in reality, the first covenant was offered to the people of Israel, not to Gentiles. And though many churches believe that the second covenant bypassed Israel and was offered to the church, capital C, that isn't true. The second covenant was promised to them as well, not us. And here, the author of Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah, beginning in verse 8. But... When God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. The first better promise we see in this new covenant is the promise of God's grace. God's grace is that unlike the old covenant, which required faithfulness on our part, this new covenant won't be like that old one. The blessings of this covenant don't depend on our faithfulness to God, which is good because we are pretty unfaithful. This new one only depends on God's faithfulness to man through Jesus. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the second better promise of the, the new covenant is the promise of internal change. The old covenant declared God's standard, but it didn't provide the power needed for obedience. As, as we've already discussed, I can't say no to sin. Sin always wins. But the new covenant comes with the power of a changed heart, inhabited by God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. Our new divine nature creates a desire to love and obey God, to say yes to his plans, purposes, and values. You see, the first covenant was external. It was written on tablets of stone. But the new covenant is written on our hearts. The new covenant is all about transformation from the inside out. 
to the prophet Ezekiel, God said, And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a heart, a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. It is this internal heart change that allows us to actually become like Jesus as we grow up spiritually. What is important to remember is that we do not become like Jesus. We do not become holy apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Even with our new heart, we do not become holy on our own. We become holy as we tap into the power that lives in us and He changes us. The more we say yes to him, the more sin loses its power over us and the more we change. All life change is the work of God's grace in us breath by breath. Nothing good happens in our own strength. Verse 11. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So the third better promise of the new covenant is the promise of forgiveness. The new covenant doesn't focus on our sins and failures. It emphasizes God's mercy and, and forgiveness. In, in fact, when it comes to our sin, God promises to never again remember it. Meaning that he promises to never hold it against us. He will deal with us on the merits of grace and mercy. And then the author closes out this chapter with this. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. So when it comes to the old and new covenants, there is something else we should probably understand. As I said earlier, I've used us and them pretty interchangeably as I've referred to the Old and New Covenants. Technically, the Old Covenant was a covenant made by God to Israel through Moses. We are not part of the Old Covenant. Well, unless you're Jewish. And technically, as we saw in verse 8, the New Covenant was also promised to Israel and Judah. It wasn't promised to us. So where do we come into all of this? When Jesus came to earth, his primary ministry was to the Jews. He went to them first. When he sent out the disciples, he sent them to the Jewish people. After the resurrection, he commissioned his followers to start in Jerusalem. Peter's first message at Pentecost was addressed to Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism. And in his second message in Acts chapter 3, he said that the good news of the gospel would go to the Jews first. But while it is certainly true that lots of Jews believed individually, as a nation, the Jews rejected the message and messengers of Jesus. The religious leaders opposed the church, and Stephen was the first martyr for their opposition. So the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Judea, and then to all the world, including the Gentiles. And then, when we say yes... As we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are adopted into the family of Abraham, making us technically Jewish. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 11, where he says, among other things, that we have been grafted into Abraham's tree. 
So it really is an us covenant. And for now, the promise of the gospel is still individual, like it has been for the Jewish nations since Pentecost. The blessings of the new covenant are applied to individuals. But, as we see in verse 13, while the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete, it has yet to completely disappear. There will still come a day when the blessings of the new covenant will be applied to the nation of Israel and to all people. Until that day, we are still in the transition stage. There are still promises to be fulfilled. Until that day, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's how we're supposed to live. I'm not sure that any of us really live that way most of the time. We are far more casual in our approach to becoming like Jesus. The new, the new covenant offers the motivation and power to become like Jesus. It, it makes an intimate relationship with him possible. It provides the assurance and security we need to confidently live out love in every area of our lives, knowing that Jesus is enough when we fail. And yet, for some strange reason, instead of greater, we choose less. We choose comfort, convenience, and compromise. So as we go to prayer, I want to invite you to consider where God might be calling you to grow. Not, not just consider. Certainly start there. But then commit. The journey to spiritual maturity is made up of millions of little yeses. So maybe just commit to a little yes and see where that takes you. See what God does in you. And then do it again. Keep choosing the greater option over and over and over. Consider, commit, and become like Jesus. One yes at a time. Let's pray. Father, I know um, that as we go to prayer, that we have so much to be thankful for. Thankful that um, that we don't live under the old covenant with all of the, the thou shalt nots that we would have to live our lives by. Thankful that grace and mercy and forgiveness offer us a different path forward. Thankful that the new covenant allows us to become like Jesus. Allows us to become like Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, instead of expecting us to become like Jesus without the power to make it happen. Here in these moments, Father, we pray that you would uh, be speaking to each one of us, giving us our next yes that we need to say. I believe with all of my heart that you, um, you've already been doing that. And for most of us, we probably know what that next yes is. It's not, it's not enough to just know what it is. What love requires of us is to say yes. And in saying yes, 
we become a little more like Jesus, which is what we are all about. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives and they want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God will give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. One easy way to do that is to share this service with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Thank you for liking, sharing, and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. All of these simple acts of kindness on your part, God uses to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.